Well, my week's been good. And from what I heard from you guys, it may not have been easy, but it was good. See if we can make this happen. Yay! Ginny's not in the sound booth, and I'm being very careful with this little clicker, because if I hit it wrong, I end up locking everything up. Today we're talking about lesson number, I think it is 13 or something like that in my sermon series. It's actually lesson 22 in the book with Christ in the School of Prayer. And he talks about how the word of God interacts with our prayer life. And uh, there were so many different paths that I could have taken on this. But God took me on a journey that I wasn't expecting this week. And I wanted to share a little bit of with that, a little bit of my journey with you this morning. And I trust that God is going to do the same in your heart as he did with mine this week. So we're going to first of all look at John chapter 15, verse 7, which is the key verse of this book or this section um, and this sermon this morning. John chapter 15, Jesus is speaking and he says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish and it'll be given to you. And this, if you don't remember, is exactly the same verse we looked at last week. Last week, we talked about the idea of remaining in God or remaining in Jesus. But the focus this week is on the words. He said, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be given to you. What is the phrase my words remain in you, bring into your mind. Go ahead. Reading. Okay. I'm sorry? In other words, so something that you've memorized coming out and then helping you through whatever it is that you're facing for that day. Okay. You, you and Renee, you said uh, his word is what remains in me feels like um, living water, like a, like a fountain, like something that springs forth from, from God. Pretty much what Sonia was just saying that it's something that comes out to do to, to work in your life, it's living, it's active. Yes, sir, ma'am. Yeah. Look at this verse. This is Psalm 119, verse 11. It says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Which is pretty much what Sonia just said, which is what Melody just said. Melanie said, when I don't want to act the right way and my, my initial response would be something inappropriate... All of a sudden, I'm reminded that that's not what God's word says, and I need to change the way that I'm going to respond in this case. Um, <clears throat> but we talked this morning in Sunday school about the difference between ritual and actually living out. Help me to remember the phraseology, because I don't have it in my head right this second. With Sunday school, we said knowledge... 
Exact. Thank you. The choice to serve God lives in will, not knowledge or ritual. And we were talking about that down in Sunday school. We have a choice to make with absolutely every situation that we face throughout the day. And that choice is not just a ritual. But indeed, it is a way that we live out our life from the very foundation of who we are. What we have built our life on. What we hold to be our set of values. Our set of standards. And the world would tell you that as long as you do no harm to anyone else, that your set of standards are appropriate to anyone else. I mean, and can be in contrast to someone else's, and that's okay. And I would tell you that the word of God says there is only one standard, and that is the word of God. And what God says goes, and if you don't, if you don't follow God's word, if you violate God's word, there will be consequences. And the world doesn't like to hear that. The world likes to hear, well, as long as it's okay for you and it doesn't affect me terribly, then it's okay. But there is a truth, a standard of truth, an absolute doesn't change standard of truth. And when we take that truth and we hide it in who we are and it becomes our foundation, it is then that we can know that we're standing in right relationship with God. And that we can have confidence as we walk around this world. So I want to look at that this morning in relation to our prayer life. Andrew Murray in this chapter said, Prayer is not monologue. It is not me simply speaking to God. But it is dialogue. He said that God's voice in response to mine is most essential. It is probably the most essential part. God's voice speaking to me in prayer. As a young Christian, as a new Christian, as an inexperienced Christian, I would go, oh God, thank you so much for this day. Please bless everything about my day. Bless all of my friends. Amen. And then I'd go, I did my devotions. And now I can go on with the rest of my life. And that's like picking up the phone and saying, hi, mom, I love you. How you doing? Okay, bye-bye, click. And mom's like, ah. Ah, nice talking with you, son. If we don't take the time to listen, we'll never hear, of course. But there's so much that God wants to speak to us and say to us. And then people say, well, okay, if, if God wants to talk with me and I'm listening, then how do I hear? Because I've tried and I don't know how to recognize God's voice. Well, I will say to you that it isn't a learned experience. I will say to you that it is a skill that one must develop. But I will also say to you that every Christian, regardless of their length of time in relationship with God, every Christian, no matter how immature or mature, can hear the voice of God and know that it's the voice of God. How? Open his word. Guess what? The Bible it clearly says the Bible, the scriptures are living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword that they can split down right to the dividing of the bone between the spirit and the soul. Now, what that's saying is, is like what Renee said just a few minutes ago, like what Sonia said just a few minutes ago, what like Melanie said a few minutes ago. At the moment that we need it, God can raise up through his Holy Spirit a remembrance of the words of God into the experience you're in right now and he can then help you to apply that truth to what you're living. How does it get there? Oh, well, God just magically, mystically speaks it to me in that moment. Not. The reality is that it gets there by discipline and effort. You have to ingest it. 
It's just like eating real food. If you don't eat a good, healthy diet, you cannot grow to full maturity in your physical body. If you eat junk and only junk, you will be stunted in your growth as a human being. And the same is true for your spirit. If you do not feed your spirit by a continual diet of the truth, reading God's word, then you cannot grow to maturity. So as a baby Christian, some who doesn't know God's voice, who can't recognize it, you can at least go to his recorded voice. You know, my mom is dead. I can never talk with her again. On the face of this earth, I can never talk to her again. But I can go back and watch old videos. And I may not be able to communicate with her dialoguing, but I can hear her voice. My brother Chris, at her memorial service, as we were committing her, her human remains into the ground, he said, the one thing I'm going to miss, most of all, is mom's squeaky voice. And I say to you that it's hard to hear God's voice. It's not something, I, I, don't, I cannot testify that every time I'm interacting with God, I hear this, oh, Bob, I want to talk to you. It doesn't happen. Sometimes it does. Not audibly. But he does speak to us. And it's, it, I, I say to you, it is a learned skill. I need to learn how to speak to God. I need to learn to discern his voice. I need to learn how to speak his language. Now, when I say that, let me explain this. I lived in Europe for a number of years. I was in England. We traveled around Europe a little bit, and I learned this over there. In Europe, what do you call a person <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> who can speak more than three languages? They're multilingual. If they speak only two languages, what are they called? Bilingual. If they can only speak one language, what do the Europeans call them? Americans. Yeah. True. Very true. I have learned throughout the years, I've traveled around the world, and it is a gifting that God has given me to learn languages. I was over at Mia's Cafe earlier this week, and I ordered her hamburger salad. And she came up to me and said, I made it special for you today. I put this, and she pointed out this special leaf. That was, she said, sesame leaf. Oh, very good. We like it. Korean people like this. Very good. I said, thank you. And, and so I started eating the meal, and I went, Gah! Ah, that's disgusting. The whole stinking salad was sesame leaves, almost. So, you know, instead of putting in romaine, she put in the sesame leaves and everything else with ice, was iceberg. So I separated the stuff. And then I felt really bad because you know, she remade it special for me. And, and, and So I texted my daughter, Robin, who used to be a Korean linguist back when she was in the military. And I wrote her and I said, honey, how do you say I'm sorry in Korean? And she texted me back and she said, mi hamnida means, I mean, mi an hamnida means I'm sorry. So Mia came back and I said, mi an hamnida. She went, oh, you know, like, I said, mi an hamnida, mi an hamnida. She said, oh, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And then as I was leaving, I said, kamsamnida, which means thank you. And then I said, dobubshida, which means I'll see you later. So I know three expressions in Korean and I can communicate with, with Mia in her own native tongue. And did you know in Mandarin Chinese, if you wanted to come up to somebody and say, how are you? You'd say, ning hao ma. And you have to go, how? You don't go, how or how? You go, how? Ning hao ma. Because there's four different inflections for every syllable. And if you don't say it correctly, like if you want to say hi to somebody, it's zao. If you say zao, you get in trouble. 
You don't say that. Oh, it's recorded. It's going to be on the internet. Oh my goodness. I just said a bad word. <laughs> Hopefully nobody in China listens to this. Um, but if you say, how are you in Mandarin Chinese? Nin hao ma. If you say it in Spanish, como esta? If you say it in Tagalog, como esta ka? If you say it in Russian, kakdila. So see, I am multilingual. <laughs> the problem is, I only know this much. I mean, I spent six weeks in Korea one time, back in the 80s. Um, I was there for a six-week uh, temporary duty, and you know we did our work during the day, and in the evening we could do whatever we wanted. So we go down into the into the town, and 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 it was fun to go shopping and stuff. But you'd ask somebody, "How do you get such and such?" And they try to tell you. Well, they would tell you the name of the street or the name of the building, and you know if it said go to China Hot Springs Road, they'd say in Korean China Hot Springs Road or whatever. Well, I'd have to figure out what the street sign. Said so. I literally in six weeks taught myself to read Korean, because I knew what I was looking for, and I knew what the street sign was. So I was like Chiawa, Chiawa. Oh, cool, Chiawa. So that symbol means Chiawa or whatever. And so I learned how to read in Korean in six weeks. Now, did I know what I was reading? Hadn't a clue. Didn't know anything what I was reading. I didn't know what the word meant, but I knew how to recognize the symbol. I could read the sign and pronounce it correctly, even though it made no impact inside of me, other than I knew I was on the right street. I mean, I didn't know what the street was. I was reading one billboard. I was in a train heading to, or as a bus, a train or a bus on the highway or on the track on the train track, heading down to Pusan, and there was this big, huge billboard, and I'm reading it. Excellente, excellente. Excellente. What is that? And I asked the guy who was sitting next to me. Excellent. It's the English. Excellent. What they had done was they had transliterated the word excellent into Korean because they were trying to say this is excellent. Buy this. You know, excellente. Well, we do the same thing. You know, we say au revoir. We know what that means. Or or gesundheit. So, I mean, we've done the same thing. But anyway, I was in Korea. I knew how to read the language. I knew how to find my way around. But I still didn't know what I was reading. I didn't have understanding, but I could at least communicate a little bit. The problem with knowing only a little bit of a language is a hindrance only when you try to communicate with somebody. I mean, I can I can walk up to everybody in Russia in Moscow and go Kaktila, 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 and then they go Ooh, and I'm like. <laughs> but I, I knew of a person, I don't know them personally, but I was told of a pastor who was on a, like a work and witness trip to Korea. He was an English-speaking American who spoke his one language. And he was in Korea, and he was in an environment where no one else spoke English. And they, he was with the pastor of the church that they were visiting with, and they were waiting for the interpreter, and the interpreter never showed. And they were like... You know, so there, but finally, finally, the Korean pastor looked up in his Korean English Bible, the passage, Second Thessalonians 1, 2. Somebody open that up and read it out loud for us. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse two. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So the Korean pastor looked up 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2 and pointed to it in the English, even though he didn't speak or read English and had his new pastor friend who only spoke English read that same verse in English. And then the English-speaking pastor went, ah, and so he went to a verse. And then the Korean speaker went to a verse. And then the English speaker went to a verse. And they communicated for two hours only using the scriptures. They did not know any other part of the language, but they had a bridge between the two of them, which was the word of God. And they knew the word of God well enough that they were able to find verses that they were able to have a two hour long conversation, even though they neither one spoke the other person's language. That's powerful. I was in a missionary, well, in a men's prayer breakfast back in Texas many, many years ago. And we had a missionary from Guatemala who had come. He was an American who was living in Guatemala, had been for like 15, 20 years. And he was standing before us speaking. And he was talking about his life in Guatemala and all about the ministry he was doing there. And and without even blinking an eye, he began speaking Spanish to us. For over five minutes, this man is speaking Spanish to us. And we're just like, huh? And we're trying to figure out what in the world's going on. And all of a sudden, this look comes over his face and he went, was I speaking English or Spanish? And we went, you were speaking Spanish, we think. And he went, I'm so sorry. I just, I'm to the point now in my life where I don't think in English anymore. I think in Spanish because that's become my native tongue. I, I, I mean, I, I, I speak more Spanish now over the last 15 years than I do English. And so it is now that my train of thought is in Spanish. I'm sorry, I didn't even realize that I had stopped speaking English to you. I'm so sorry. Let me back up. And he backed up and started talking to us again. But can you imagine an American who only speaks one language getting to the point where he can think in another language? We're to the point where he doesn't even recognize that he's not speaking his native tongue anymore because it's so natural for him? Are we hearing anything in this? In the relationship of learning how to speak God's language. Let me read to you a quote from Andrew Murray. I don't know if you can read it up there, but it's the best I could do to get it on one screen. This hearing the voice of God is something more than the thoughtful study of his word. There may be a study and knowledge of the word in which there is but little real fellowship with the living God. But there is also a reading of the word in the very presence of the Father and under the leading of the Spirit in which the word comes to us in living power from God himself. And it is to us the very voice of the Father, a real personal fellowship with himself. It is the living voice of God that enters the heart, that brings blessing and strength and awakens the response of a living faith that reaches the heart of God again. And you just thought spending two or three minutes in God's word every day was a requirement for a good Christian. This is the opportunity where you literally get to connect with the holy, omnipotent, almighty God of all. And he literally can speak to you in a way that you can read and hear and understand and apply to your life. When I was in the United States Air Force, many, many years ago, I was living in... um, Biloxi, Mississippi, at Keesler Air Force Base. And my job at that time was, I was responsible, one of the things of my job, I was responsible for the retirement and separation briefing. It's a required briefing. It's got certain things that have to be included in it. Um, And I had the luxury of living in an area that I had a lot of resources around me, and I was able to gather up 
guest speakers on each of these topics. I mean, I had people from the Small Business Administration, the Veterans Administration. I had people from, from everywhere. I, we even had a guest speaker come in who was from Gottschalk's or one of the big name departments. I was Dillard's, I think was the name of the department store. And they came in from the men's department to pe- teach people. And we also had a woman come in from the women's department to teach people how to dress in the business world and how to fit yourself with clothing that was appropriate. So that way you would know, because I mean, in the military, they say, this is what you wear. Okay. You know, in the, in the civilian world, you need to know how to dress for success. So what we did was it was our job to help impart all this information to the people who were getting ready to retire or to separate from the military. And it was a, it was a requirement. I mean, I had a, a department regulation that I had to follow. And these topics had to be included in this four-hour-long briefing. So it was wonderful to have all those resources. But then I got reassigned to RAF Bentwaters in England. I still had the same responsibility. I still had to teach the same thing. And I had absolutely no means of getting those people back from Mississippi into England. I wish, honestly, I wish that I had videotaped it. Because then I could have at least plopped the videotape into the machine. So it became my responsibility to be the repository of all that information and to be able to spew it out once every three months to all the people that were separating and retiring. And I would literally spend four hours speaking, talking about all of these topics. And at the end of each session, we would always give a, a critique form, a survey form for the people to fill out. And then we'd go to my boss and they would try to help me to improve the briefing and blah, blah, blah. Well, one of the comments I got one time was this man said, I am in awe. This master sergeant just stood in front of me for four hours and without looking at his notes, gave me all of the information I'm going to need to go successfully into my next part of my life. Thank you. I am amazed at this man. And I was like, Wow. I, I did that. I really did. I, I was able to impart all of that information for four hours without needing notes. That's amazing. Well, how did I get that? Oh, God just downloaded it into my brain. No. I studied. I learned. I used that which I heard from those other speakers, and then I went to resources available to me, books, pamphlets, the Internet, which was infant, in its infancy at that point. And I was able to gather information and put it into my brain so that when I needed it, I could spew it back out. And I literally became an expert in giving the retirement and separation briefing. I would venture to say I was the best in England, probably the best in the United States Air Forces in Europe, and very possibly the best in the Air Force because I was that good. I'm not saying that because I'm just that I'm just telling you this is this is what happened. Now, it didn't come to me just because I was a good guy. It literally was a lot of hard work to do it. And I want to read to you this section of scripture that uh, has been in front of your face now for the last few minutes. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on the foundation using gold or silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It'll be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. Now, if what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. And if it's burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Now, to be true to the exegetical process, exegetical means this is what the Bible says in plain English. The exegetical, the exegesis of this passage of scripture is actually talking about what ministers and pastors are required of. Okay, there's a foundation of Jesus Christ. And then what I do to build on that to build his kingdom is how my, t- my work is going to be tested. This, the context is not talking about the individual Christian. But look at the concept. The concept is saying, your 
work, your life's work will be judged by fire. Whatever survives can go with you into heaven. Whatever doesn't is lost. You'll still make it through. You'll still be saved. But what was what part of your work was valid and worthwhile? So even though this scripture is not talking about individual Christians and their life work, let's take the concept and apply it to ourselves. What part of your world, what part of your life is going to hold up under the scrutiny of the fire of God? And why isn't it going to hold up? Maybe because you're not doing the effort. Maybe because you just come to church and that's about all your relationship with God is, is an hour once a week. I'm not saying that that's what it is. I'm just saying, what would your life look like on the other side of the fire? What would survive? Last thing I want to talk to you about. Proverbs chapter 12. Wickedness never brings stability. Godliness brings deep roots. Wickedness never brings stability. But the godly have deep roots. Proverbs 10, 25. When the storms of life come, the wicked are whirled away. But the godly have a lasting foundation. A very familiar portion of scripture, Luke chapter 4, verses 46 to 49. Jesus is talking about, if you put what I say into practice, if you take my words and apply them to your life, it's like building your house on a solid foundation. But the very part of this that he says is, why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? And to me, that was a very powerful thing. I've never read that before. I know that I have, because I've read through the Bible many times. But this week, when I read those words, it was like they jumped off the page. It was like that fountain flowing up, saying, I'm talking to you, Bob. When you call me Lord, what does that mean, Bob? And if you're going to call me Lord, then why don't you do what I say? And it's none of your business what he was talking to me about. Because if you ask me, I'm going to ask you. And you get to go first. (laughs) But as I reflected on that, All that we've talked about so far. I came down to this one thing. When I was 20-something, we lived in Massachusetts. My Aunt Marion, my dad's younger sister, lives just outside of Boston. She's a very filthy, stinking rich lady. Don't listen to this, Aunt Marion. But she's a filthy, stinking rich lady. She's a lawyer. She's single. She's got all the money she needs and more. She had a cabin up in the mountains of New Hampshire. Beautiful property, absolutely gorgeous property. And it was just a small, modest cabin with a big redwood, uh, uh, yeah, redwood deck all the way around the outside of it. And I was sitting on that deck one day and just looking around and they had landscaped it nicely. And, and um, a lot of bark mulch, I mean, like six, eight inches deep of bark mulch. Every year she had eight inches more piled on top of the bark mulch. It was just this soft, cushiony, almost like walking on moss. As you walked around her property, she said, I don't like to weed and I don't want to mow a lawn when I come up here. So she just had that. But she had plants. and It was gorgeous. But in the middle of in the middle of this bark mulch, just off of the deck was this big, huge granite boulder. And I was like, Aunt Marion, 
that's really weird. I mean, I'm not trying to be rude, but what in the world possessed you to put that boulder there? It's in the way. I mean, why not over there where the other plants were or off the, but there? That's kind of goofy. And she went, Bobby, when I had the contractors up here building the house, I told them I wanted that rock moved. And the man looked at me and said, lady, if you want that rock moved, I'm going to need some dynamite because that's the bedrock. <laughs> that's literally the mountain coming up out of the soil. It ain't moving. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. We'll work around it. And what I thought about with that was if I were to build my foundation on the bedrock, it says in that portion of Luke that the man who was a wise builder dug down deep until he got to the bedrock and then he fastened his foundation to the bedrock so that when the storms of life came, there wasn't any shaking of his building. There wasn't any problem with it rolling because of the permafrost. Believe me, I lived here long enough, I understand these things. And then I was thinking, because I was sitting right there on the porch, I was thinking about when we built this extension out here, the Arctic entryway at the back southeast corner of the, of the church. And we went to an Arctic engineer and we said, what do we need to do to make sure that that doesn't roll and pitch through the seasons? And what she had us do was we had to dig down 12 feet, wasn't it? 10 or 12 feet? And put gravel in there and put concrete pilings in there and then put the the support thingies on it, and then build the framework on top of that. And we have seen minimal movement in that because it was done right. Now, you go to this other corner of the building and we got a six-inch drop because there was something wrong there that wasn't accounted for properly at the very beginning. Not saying anybody did anything wrong. It just, there's a difference between right, I mean right and wrong. And right stays, stays up. If it's built correctly, if it's done right, if you do it on the correct foundation. And you can drive down University Avenue and turn right onto Farmer's Loop and you can see that house right by the university where the ridge line literally does a U because they built on permafrost. And most of our homes you can look at and see the cracks and stuff because it's a struggle that we have living up here. I mean, it's nothing against any person. It's just reality of life. But your Christian life doesn't need to look like that. You should be able to walk around as a Christian without cracks in your sheetrock. Because your, your foundation should literally be fastened to the bedrock, to Jesus himself. And the way that happens is that you get into his word and you discipline yourself to study it and to put it in here so that when the time comes, the Holy Spirit can bring it out when the trials of life come. So that when the storms come, you don't get washed away like the wicked. The godly have deep roots that hold them firm because they're rooted to the rock. That's why I said to you this morning, Jehovah was my rock, my shelter this week. I want to read to you this last quote and then we're going to take our communion. Andrew Murray said, Disciples of Christ, is it not becoming more and more clear to us that while we have been excusing our unanswered prayers, our impotence in prayer, with a fancied submission to God's wisdom and will, the real reason has been that our own feeble life has been the cause of our feeble prayers. Nothing can make us strong men and women but the word coming to us from God's mouth. By that we must live. It is the word of Christ, loved. I mean, excuse me, word of Christ, loved, 
lived in, abiding in us, becoming through obedience and action part of our being that makes us one with Christ, that fits us spiritually for touching, for taking hold of God. All that is of the world passeth away. He that doth the will of God abideth forever. Oh, let us yield heart and life to the words of Christ, the words in which he ever gives himself the personal living Savior. And his promise will be our rich experience. If ye abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will and it shall be done for you. Father, I come before you right now. I'm humbled because even in my own life, there are so many times, so many times, when my carelessness and my lackadaisical attitude and my selfishness and my slothfulness have caused me to be ignoring your word, to be ignoring you, and to just walk around living my own life, doing what I please. And it is amazing to me that I could live 35 years in relationship with you and know this truth and still Let it happen to me that when I do walk away by not reading, not talking with you, not communing with you on a frequent basis, I feel weak, I feel tired, I get disoriented, I get frustrated, I see more anger. If I could just become steady. And Lord, in my humanity, it's not possible for me to be 100%. So I have to lean on you for the strength to be 100%. When I am weak, you need to be my strength. When I don't feel like it, I need you to kick me in the bottom and make me get up and do it. And Father, I pray, not only for myself, but for all of my brothers and sisters in this room. I pray, God, that this week, you will make us so uncomfortable until we get into your word, where we will find gems of great value that we can adorn our life with. I pray this, Father, in the mighty and powerful name of your Son, our Savior. Amen.